Fauci is worse than you thought. And Hillary is behind the China virus. Hashtag lock them up. And I've got the receipts on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and the deep state and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 361 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Sunday, March 19th, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented an unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a, is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, click on the button that says Become a Patron, and we really appreciate all of our patrons. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports, with my friend Donnie Copeland, which drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. Okay, Kanakoa the Great, over on Twitter and Substack, has the receipts on Dr. Anthony Fauci being even worse than you imagined. John Moynihan and Larry Doyle, the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers, have the receipts on his Hillary being behind the creation of the Wu flu, the China virus. Now, let me begin by telling you how I heard about John Moynihan and Larry Doyle. On August 7th, 2018, I was minding my own business, doing my local radio talk show in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I received a phone call from a listener who worked at the Little Rock Airport. He told me he didn't understand what was going on, but there were quite a few federal agents at the airport loading hundreds of boxes of documents onto a jumbo jet owned by the United States Department of Justice, and that jumbo jet was going to be headed back to Washington, D.C. And these federal agents did this twice in a span of about three days. My producer and I thought, well, now that's a big deal. We figured it must have something to do with the Clinton Foundation because what else could it have been? I mean, we doubted the feds had all of a sudden taken an active interest in the Arkansas Boll Weevil Eradication Board. We checked the daily newspaper in Little Rock, all of the TV news operations to see if anyone could confirm our suspicions about this big federal operation being connected to the Clinton Foundation. But there was a total media blackout in Little Rock, Arkansas. The Doc Washburn Show on the radio was the only media coverage of a whole bunch of federal agents at the airport in Little Rock 
loading hundreds of boxes of documents onto a big jumbo jet owned by DOJ and headed back to Washington, D.C. twice in three days. We thought that was kind of weird. Over four months later, December 13th, 2018, a couple of gentlemen named John Moynihan and Larry Doyle, who had an operation, a big company that investigates 501c3s. They call themselves the Clinton Foundation Whistleblowers. Moynihan and Doyle were were called before the U.S. House Oversight Committee, and they verified our suspicions from over four months earlier, back in August of 2018, that, yes, the feds had indeed raided the Clinton Foundation. Now, again, I'm bringing this up on today's show because Moynihan and Doyle now also have the receipts tying Hillary to the creation of COVID. By the way, then-Congressman Mark Meadows, who later became President Trump's chief of staff, was chairman of the House Oversight Committee in 2018. Now, if you have never heard this audio before, it is just remarkable. First, we're going to start off with the pertinent part of Moynihan and Doyle's opening statement in which they lay out a dizzying array of ways in which the Clinton Foundation conducts illegal activities. And it went something like this. Our conclusions in the interest of time are this. Foreign agent. The foundation began acting as an agent of foreign governments early in its life and has continued doing so throughout its existence. As such, the foundation should have registered under FARA. Ultimately, the foundation and its auditors acknowledged this fact and conceded in formal submissions that it did operate as an agent. Okay, now, when he says they should have registered under FARA, that's, that's a federal law. Uh, FARA is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, passed in 1938. If you're American and you're representing foreign governments, you have to register with the U.S. government as an agent of a foreign country. That's the law. I mean, you know, I guess unless you're Bill and Hillary Clinton. But wait, there's more. Therefore, the foundation is not entitled to 501c3 tax exemplin privileges as outlined in IRS 170c2. See, that's the thing. These guys quote the pertinent federal statutes for everything that they allege. A lot of times people say, hey, so-and-so is bringing the receipts, or I got the receipts. I mean, this is, this is literally receipts. Misrepresentations. The Clinton Foundation did not comply with the requirements of 501c3 and that it far exceeded the purposes detailed in its original Articles of Incorporation filed December 23, 1997, and subsequently reaffirmed in numerous other records across many jurisdictions, including with NARA. The foundation did pursue programs and activities for which it had neither sought nor achieved permission to undertake. Okay. Every time he kind of uses shorthand for something, I'm going to try to catch it and fill you in. So he, when he said, including NARA, that's N-A-R-A, the National Archives and Records Administration. The entity that went after Donald Trump, who was 
cooperating with them, and they got DOJ to send FBI agents down from D.C. to do the illegal and unconstitutional raid of his home in Florida anyway. Well, see, the Clinton Foundation was not cooperating with them. But as the great philosopher Sly and the Family Stone once said, different strokes for different folks, right? Here's more from Moynihan and Doyle, December 18th, pardon me, December 13th, 2018, in front of the House Oversight Committee. Such was the case even before the completion and transferral of the Presidential Library in 2004. As such, representation by the foundation to donors was a misrepresentation of the approval, organizational tax status allowing it to raise funds for the Presidential Library and related programs therein. In these pursuits, the foundation failed the organizational and operational test 501c3 Internal Revenue Code 7.25.3. Additionally, the intentional misuse of donated public funds. The foundation falsely attested that it received funds and used them for charitable purposes, which was in fact not the case. Rather, the foundation pursued an array of activities, both domestically and abroad. Some may be deemed philanthropic, albeit unimproved, while others, much larger in scope, are properly characterized as profit-oriented and taxable undertakings of private enterprise, again failing the operational tests for philanthropy referenced above. So what they're saying here is the Clinton Foundation is pretending to be a charity, but is actually a for-profit business. Now, that's the kind of thing that should get you indicted for breaking federal law, right? But wait, there's more. The investigation clearly demonstrates that the foundation was not a charitable organization per se, but in point of fact was a closely held family partnership. As such, it was governed in a fashion in which it sought in large measure to advance the personal interests of its principles as detailed within the financial analysis of this submission and further confirmed within the supporting documentation and evidence section. Our last finding, donors' responsibilities. The private foundations that donated to the Clinton Foundation are themselves subject to tax payments on the donations that they made to the foundation under code IRC 4945, unless they meet specific conditions as outlined in IRS code 727-19582. Completed. Thank you for your time. Okay, so that is from uh, Moynihan and Doyle's opening statement, December 13th, 2018, in front of the uh, U.S. House Oversight Committee. Uh, Mark Meadows was the chairman. And uh, by the time this happened and I found out about it, I had been doing a local radio talk show in Little Rock, Arkansas for four and a half years. But, you know, I started reading about the Clintons back in the 90s. The American Spectator had all kinds of uh, exposés. You know, I I saw, I, I watched the the uh, documentary online about Mena, Arkansas, and the drug smuggling. I watched the Clinton Chronicles. I interviewed the mother of one of the boys in the tracks. So the fact that they were doing this was really no shock to me. Um, the interesting thing was that there was an actual committee in the United States House 
when the Republicans were still in control of the House there in December 2018, lame duck, that was actually entertaining these gentlemen and, and listening to what they had to say. So, um, next, Chairman Meadows, Mark Meadows, who at that time was still a U.S. House representative from Western North Carolina, he wanted to know how Moynihan and Doyle had arrived at the conclusion that the Clinton Foundation was breaking laws and things in this interaction got pretty testy, actually. Do you believe that uh, based on any interviews that you've done with anybody at the Clinton Foundation that there was criminal activity that might have might have um, happened within the Clinton Foundation? We believe there is indicia of that, yes. All right, and you, you base that based on what? The interviews. W- with whom? We interviewed Mr. Andy Kessel. Um, Larry? Okay, Andy Kessel was a chief financial officer for the Clinton Foundation for a long time. I want to say, was it was it like 20 years? Let me see. Because I, 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 I looked up Andy Kessel on, uh, on LinkedIn. And I, I want to say it was something like 20 years. Let me let me double check on that real quick. Because he was when when they tell you when they tell you what Andy Kessel admitted to them. Oh my goodness. Okay, so Andy Kessel, who was a private consultant now that he's retired from the Clinton Foundation. Chief Financial Officer, Clinton Foundation, April 2004 to February 2022. So almost 18 years. So he held that job for over three years after Moynihan and Doyle testified about their interview with him. I'm telling you, it gets kind of crazy. Speak to that directly. We interviewed, together. we interviewed Mr. Kessel on November 30th, 2016. I had reached out to him in early to mid-October. Of uh, uh, Andy was a former acquaintance of mine on Wall Street. Andy called me back on November 9th at 9.45 in the morning, uh, about three to three, three and a half weeks after I had reached out to him. We exchanged pleasantries. I had informed uh, uh, Mr. Kessel about my relationship with Mr. Moynihan so that he was fully aware of, uh, of who John was. We got together, and... Um, he was very forthcoming. We stand by every word uh, that we provided. So what does forthcoming mean? I mean, what, what alleged criminal activity do you believe that the Clinton Foundation may have, may have uh, been a part of? His statements to us were very clear and very genuine. He told us that Mr. Clinton, on a regular basis, mixed and matched his personal business on an ongoing basis with that of the foundation. 
right, so so your conversations with Mr. Kessel indicated that there was commingling of funds between the president and the foundation. Is that correct? Yeah, expenditure of donated funds between his. Per- so he would use uh, donated funds to the foundation for personal use. That Private annulment is what they would call that. That was stated to us. Yes. And so, uh, were there any other criminal allegations? Well, he just stated to us very specifically, and it kind of took us both off guard, to be quite frank. I've been doing this business for a long time. When someone says to me, quote, I know where all the bodies are buried, it was shocking. But, but, but that's hyperbole. So go ahead. Tell me what is the other cr- potential criminal activity that may have happened. Well, his statements to us about that, we have submitted with the IRS. It's up to them to make a determination on that. What are the alleged criminal, other criminal activity that was communicated to you, Mr. Moynihan, from Mr. Kessel? What he communicated to us was the commingling of funds. That's the most specific of illegal activities right. on a regular and ongoing basis. Did you did you have uh, another interview with Mr. Miss Fischel? Miss who? Barbara Fischel. Barbara Any, Fischel. Yeah. Is there no. anybody else that you interviewed other than that? We did. Who who was that? We're not at liberty to give that name. Sir, your sworn testimony, let me just tell you, that dog doesn't hunt here. So if if you've interviewed someone else, as a witness, you're required to answer that or plead the fifth. What what do you want to do? We made a confidentiality agreement with her at the time, so we'll plead the fifth. But we're happy to speak about the interview. We just can't give her name up. So what you're saying is you have a confidentiality, confidentiality agreement with someone you interviewed. Yeah. And, and what was person, that person's position? A very senior position within the Clinton Healthcare Access Program. All right. So within what is, I guess, referred to as CHI, is that the largest part of the Clinton Correct. Foundation? Yes. yes. And how many, how many dollars of assets would be in the CHI part of the foundation? Now, in case you weren't listening closely, they're going to say CHI a bunch of times. And again, that stands for Clinton Healthcare Initiative. I just want to make sure you, 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 you got that. Clinton Health Initiative. Oh, we've got it right here. Well, just give us a minute. We'll look yep. in the Approximately $900 million by the uh, analysis that we had done. Okay. And, and what were the allegations that she alerted you to? She stated very specifically... Um, that the funds were used as essentially a piggy bank. You could travel and vacation when you wanted to. That the senior administrators within this fund, operating this fund, treated this and commingled this as personal business, foundation business for travel and personal expense. So what you're saying is is that they could use the Clinton Foundation charitable donations for private travel and go on personal trips. Is that what you're saying? Yes, we see that as conversion of foundation property. What else? We can roll the sheet down. Go ahead. She also referenced uh, Mr. Clinton's relationship with uh, one of his largest donors, that being Bill Gates, at which point in time she said that they were not on speaking terms uh, and referenced uh, the the, the fact that at at this point in time during 2009 that the the health initiative had not received prior uh, formal approval by the IRS for their activities. This is where it gets very interesting. 
In fact, so, so hold, hold on. So you're saying the Clinton Foundation had not received proper uh, approval? Uh, who, who did not receive proper approval? The Clinton Health uh, Prior to 2010, CHI was uh, the acronym for Clinton HIV AIDS. Uh, what we are led to believe from this interview was Mr. Gates telling Mr. Clinton, you need to get formal approval for this activity, which went all the way back to 2002. That's the premise of our submission. That, and it was at that point in time that they actually went and got uh, formal approval for that activity from the, uh, from the IRS. And Chai then became known as Clinton Health Access Initiative. So Bill Gates is telling Bill Clinton, uh, look, you've, uh, you've been breaking law for seven years now. You, uh, you don't have uh, formal approval from the federal government to do what you're doing. He tell, Bill Gates is telling Clinton this in 2009. Wait, you've been doing this since 2002, man. I mean, you can't, can't do this. Anyway, wait, there's, there's more. Well, all right, so who, who approved the, the 501c3 status for the foundation? It would have been the IRS. And one of who at the IRS? Do you have the document? Uh, yeah, well, it, we have it. I don't know what the person's name is offhand, but we've got the determination letters. And it was approved for what? Building a library or? The initial approval was simply for a library. So who, uh, who modified it? That's what we worked on. We saw no modifications to the Articles of Incorporation. If you want to change your status, you need to notify the IRS. No, I, I get that. You've said okay. that before. Okay. So was there any modification? No. All right. Uh, we've got a second round. Uh, the gentleman from George, I'm going to go to you in just a second. As soon. Now, I mean, they had a charter. They had a charter basically to, um, to have a library. Not to do all this other stuff. That's kind of what we're hearing here. Here's more. As you're ready. So, could I answer to your question? A very specific misrepresentation that went on with the second chai. I think that's what you want to know. In, in, in order to go forward, the application has a Schedule G that asks you if this second chai is a successor organization to a previous one. So, you have the library. Then you have this chai running unapproved. They clearly were advised, conversations involving Mr. Gates and what have you, as we've learned, you got to get approved. They go and make an application. And on the form, Schedule G, when it's asked, is this a successor operation? They specifically and affirmatively answer no. That is a misrepresentation because it's the same people doing the same thing it's the same people doing the same thing. Additionally, we asked uh, this individual about the, the Charity Navigator rating of a four-star, to which she laughed out loud and said, I've worked within charitable uh, organizations at large firms. The Clinton Foundation is the furthest thing from a four-star rating. In fact, that person went on to further state to us that, that she advised her own friends in multiple businesses where she had worked previous to that to stop donating to the Clinton Foundation. It was so bad. All right. So, uh, so gentlemen, I'm, I'm going to yield to the gentleman from, from Georgia. Let, let, me, let me say this. So, um, it is critically important that we have the documents. 
you know, we can hear your testimony all day long, but it's it's not uh, it's not fair to Miss Norton nor to me for us to have your your testimony that we can't verify with these other documents. It's just like you submitting something and suggesting that it's one way with the IRS. Have you submitted these documents to the FBI? Yes. Do you believe that they have opened up an investigation on it based on your conversations with the FBI? Yes. Yes. So you believe that there is an uh, uh, open criminal investigation by the FBI on the Clinton Foundation out of what field office? Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas. Arkansas. So you believe out of Little Rock, Arkansas, there's an open criminal investigation into the Clinton Foundation going based on information that you've submitted to the FBI? The agent informed me as to how very, very, very grateful he was for our documents and the case fashion in which we presented it. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. This is December 13th, 2018. They're saying there was an open criminal investigation out of the FBI field office, Little Rock, Arkansas, into the Clinton Foundation. So I know what you're thinking, which is, well, nothing came from that. I don't blame you for thinking that because I certainly don't expect the FBI to voluntarily bring any kind of criminal charges to Bill or Hillary or Chelsea, the foundation. I get all that. But Moynihan and Doyle do have an ace in the hole because they eventually wound up suing the Clinton Foundation in United States tax court. And they've been in U.S. tax court for several years. And there's no statute of limitations cheating on your taxes. So I talk to these guys every once in a while. They have not come on my show yet, but we've been in contact on and off for several years. We'll have more details on that coming up. And we'll also have the uh, goods on Hillary Clinton and how Anthony Fauci is worse than you could imagine. That's all coming up. Uh, What is coming up straight ahead was the part of the interview with John Moynihan and Larry Doyle, December 13th, 2018, in front of the U.S. House Oversight Committee, in which my producer, Jay Jones, and I, when I was doing local talk radio in Little Rock, knew we had hit pay dirt. Moynihan and Doyle specifically talked about the federal agents loading boxes of documents from the Clinton Foundation onto a jumbo jet at Little Rock, Arkansas in August of 2018. That's coming up next on the Doc Washburn Show. Look, if you try to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding out, finding what you're looking for. And people I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com, pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online. If you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, 
Order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You will be glad you did. Now, I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo? You have problems with your blood sugar. How about fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines even? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you, even if you don't live in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So, it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column could get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. I have migraines year-round. I got my atlas adjusted. They went away for good. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, even migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for free consultation. They've helped me, they've helped my wife, they've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Now, as you probably have heard by now, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everybody get the best sleep of your life, and he's done it again. Introducing MyPillow 2.0. MyPillow 2.0 has a brand new temperature-regulating technology that keeps you comfortable throughout the night. MyPillow 2.0's new fabric dissipates heat and humidity to create a cooling sensation to maintain a cooler surface temperature. This new fabric technology helps regulate your body temperature throughout the night by creating a lower surface temperature for a more restful night's sleep. You know, your core body temperature plays a big role in how well you sleep. MyPillow 2.0 was developed to produce a cool surface. It's engineered for comfort. MyPillow 2.0 is available in four loft levels. It's machine washable and dryable. And there's a 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. As a special introductory offer for my listeners, When you buy your new MyPillow 2.0, you get a second one free just by using promo code DWS. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great, they feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams sheets. Now Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams sheets. 
buy a set of Giza sheets, get one free. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. Buy a set of Giza sheets and get one free just by using promo code DWS. My pillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles like plush, waffle, or gossamer. Get huge discounts on blankets, duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Use that promo code DWS, and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding, including MyPillow 2.0 and Giza Dreams sheets. Buy one, get one free. I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. Right now, save serious money on my slippers. Slip-ons and moccasins close out sale priced at just $25 by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals, just $19.98. What makes my slippers different is Mike's exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My slippers' patented layers make them ultra-comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. You wear them anytime, anywhere. Just use promo code DWS. Now remember, that does not stand for washed-up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, no, no. DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show mypillow.com and mystore.com where Mike sells all kinds of stuff. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right, now I want to play you the part of Moynihan and Doyle's testimony. When we knew we had hit pay dirt, they confirmed December 13, 2018, what we had suspected way back on August 7, 2018, the next voice you're going to hear is a person who represents Washington, D.C. in the United States House of Representatives, Eleanor Holmes Norton. She had questions for Moynihan and Doyle, and that's when we knew they were doing what the mainstream media in Arkansas refused to do, confirm our suspicions that the feds had indeed raided the Clinton Foundation in downtown Little Rock, in broad daylight, over four months earlier, back in August 2018. In your written testimony, and here's this, this date again, you stated that you had sent your submission to the IRS on August 11th, 2017. Correct. Uh, you also conceded, and I quote, this is important, recently we received a letter of preliminary denial of our claim. Correct. We asked you, what does that mean? And we asked you for a copy of that letter from the IRS. Why won't you give us a copy since you did receive a letter of preliminary denial? Because we're in an appeal status right now. You're, you're appealing the denial. Yeah, so they actually encourage you. They actually say in the letter, please Submit an appeal. They actually ask you, please submit an appeal as, as if we're wrong. So what we did is we sent our appeal in with a photocopy 
of the FBI and the IRS CID on their jackets removing boxes from the Clinton Foundation after they had brought a 757 down um, and taken all the materials out of the Clinton Foundation, Little Rock, Arkansas. We sent that with our appeal to demonstrate to the IRS that your letter coming from Atlanta doesn't reconcile with what's going on in Little Rock. Ding, 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 ding. That just stopped us dead in our tracks when we heard that. The video is still on YouTube all these years later. Almost four and a half years later. So, I mean, that kind of put a face on it. It, it wasn't just federal agents. It was FBI and IRS CID agents. That's Criminal Investigation Division. And they didn't just have pictures of these guys loading boxes on a jumbo jet owned by the United States Department of Justice at the airport in Little Rock. They had pictures of the guys hauling boxes of documents out of the Clinton Foundation. Now, pray tell, how did they get those pictures? Because the Arkansas Democrat Gazette the local newspaper in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas, they, they sure didn't have them. Or if they did, they didn't print them. The TV stations, KTV7, THV11, KRK4, Fox 16, Little Rock, Arkansas, not a peep, nothing, nothing. <laughs> You could have dozens of FBI and IRS Criminal Investigation Division agents raiding the Clinton Foundation, taking hundreds of boxes of documents out in downtown Little Rock in broad daylight, and the daily newspaper and the four television stations with evening newscasts are going to ignore that. What am I supposed to think? Here's more. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay, so they tell Eleanor Holmes Norton, Democrat, who's been representing Washington, D.C., in the U.S. House. She does not have a vote in the U.S. House. She's just a delegate. They tell her, we got the goods. And she's like, okay, I'm out. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Go ahead. Uh, the chair recognizes himself. So I, I want to do a little follow-up here. So y- your conversations with the special agents in Little Rock, Arkansas, Mr. Doyle, was that you? That was me. All right, and so your conversations with them, uh, they acknowledged they had received your submission and the pages of documents. Is that correct? That is correct. And did they acknowledge any work that they're doing with that, either directly or indirectly? Did not comment. So they just said thank you for the submission. Well, I mean, it it was a very cordial, professional conversation. I can't comment. Thank you very much. You know, we're very, very grateful for your for your efforts. And then, your- then what makes you believe that there's a criminal investigation out of Little Rock then? If that's the extent of it. I spoke to him twice. I spoke to him in, in August and then again in October. All right. So what would make you think that there's a criminal investigation, Mr. Doyle? I mean, if it was just cordial i mean then why would you believe that there's well in the in the august uh conversation he said this is an open and ongoing situation all right so he said this is an open and ongoing uh 
situation, uh, investigation or situation inve- or matter? I, I apologize. Investigation. All right. So it was an open and ongoing investigation that he couldn't comment on. Yes. So that would in, indeed indicate that there's an investigation. And, and, and Chairman, look, I worked for the DEA. I do work all over the world in these cases still. The fact that they followed up with a second inquiry, not just, hey, thanks, don't let the door hit you on the way out, but then they follow up again. That's not the sign of a closed investigation. I I get that, Mr. Moynihan, but I can't take your experience at the DEA, and and I appreciate the, the thought, but the other part of that is, Mr. Doyle, if they said there was an open and ongoing investigation, that's what you recall that they said. That is what I recall to the best of my memory. And so... So if indeed there's an open and ongoing investigation and you've given the information to them, um, why would the IRS not view that as substantial? Well, well that, that's... Did they know that there was an open and ongoing investigation? We, we sent a picture to the yeah, IRS. I, I, I heard that. Right, so, so they know. That, Some part of the IRS knows. that in our appeal letter. In your appeal. All right. And, and, and to that point, Congressman... The IRS individual was, I I would say, more than mildly surprised at our interaction with the FBI. All right. Why do you think Mr. Huber waited until November the 30th to call you about four letters that you had sent prior? Because you had sent one on the 14th, the 18th, the 29th. Those were in April, 29th of May, as I recall, and October the 10th or 12th, based on what I understand. Why did they wait until November 30th to give you a call? We don't know. Do you think it might have had to do with the fact that you're coming here to testify? Well, I mean, that this testimony invitation just came recently. I, I don't know why. They were fully aware because we had asked them to come and be a witness at this particular hearing. And then all of a sudden you get a phone call from Mr. Huber's, what, second in command? Is that correct? I don't know if he's a second, but he, he was clearly an assistant U.S. attorney dealing directly with Mr. Huber. So I find it just very coincidental that on November 30th, a few days before the hearing, after they had been noticed that we wanted them to come and testify, all of a sudden they would start following up. So, Mr. Doyle, what did they say about the documents that you had provided them? Did they have them all? Congressman, he said that we are reviewing your material. I asked him if he could comment if uh, further beyond that, if this was open and ongoing. He said... We are reviewing your material. He called me back a few hours later, uh, asked specifically about you know one exhibit, and then asked uh, further if you could uh, you know do you have these on a disc? I said I am on, have them on a thumb drive. Uh, would you like them? Please resend them. So I resent the, uh, the thumb drive that afternoon. So John Huber was U.S. Attorney for the District of Utah starting in uh, 2015 under Obama and then all through Trump's presidency. And he left that position like about a month after Joe Biden was installed. John Huber was appointed by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to investigate the FBI surveillance of Carter Page and connections between the Clinton Foundation and Uranium One starting in November 2017 after Huber closed the investigation in January 2020 announcing he had not found any malfeasance. In June 2020, Trump tweeted out that Huber 
had done absolutely nothing, was a garbage disposal unit for important documents. But Mark Meadows, Moynihan, and Doyle could not have known this in December of 2018. Here's more. Was that the first time that, that Mr. Huber and his team actually got the documents from you, Mr. Doyle? That was, that was the third time. third time. So you're telling me that on November 30th they called you back and they couldn't find the first two submissions that you had made to the Department of Justice and, and Mr. Huber? That they wanted you to send them again? That's Is what that we, what you're telling me? We're, we're concluding that ourselves. That's what we concluded. And it was just what I've been told by DOJ, which I do not believe, just to be frank, is that this was the normal process of following up on recent correspondence. What was the most recent correspondence that you had with the Department of Justice? That one. October 10th? That does sound weird. I remember at the time thinking, wait, so Huber is just misplacing documents? That does sound weird. Just, you know, between you and me. Well, I had the correspondence that that with the attorney. Well, after the follow-up, prior to the phone call, what was the most recent correspondence you had with the Department of Justice, Mr. Huber? Oh, uh, we sent materials. uh, October the 10th of 2018, delivered by FedEx on October 12th of 2018. I think I got a copy of the FedEx delivery. Yes. And so... They didn't respond to your April 4th letter. They didn't respond to the letter later in April. They didn't respond to the May 29th letter. And they di- and they finally responded to your October 10th letter a few days before a hearing that was coming up. Correct. That is correct. Do you think that that's, that shows the level of interest that a special prosecutor would show? We don't know his caseload, but quite frankly, we're disappointed that... Three years level of effort goes into this. We are not paparazzi. We are not the media. We don't want anybody to even know who we are and the work that we do. We're financial investigators. That's what we do. We get paid to do this for a living. We work for ourselves. We don't get paid by anybody else. And Congressman, we so it's disappointing that it took that long. And, and we, to hear from them. we shared our materials not only with the attorney uh, office in Salt Lake, also. Uh, uh, in Little Rock, but other U.S. attorneys' offices as well that had been indicated as you know providing support or working on Clinton-related matters. We also shared our materials with the, uh, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Um, so various jurisdictions that we felt would be interested both at the state and federal level. And you've shared all of those documents with those entities, and yet you somehow do not believe that you should share it with Congress and the American people? Well, this yeah, answer is, that one for me, Mr. Monahan. I'll answer. I really, I want to. I want to hear this because, quite you frankly, are you going to prosecute the Clintons? Are you going to bring an action against the Clintons that would yield us economic consortium? I don't think you are. Those entities. But I thought, hold on to your testimony. Don't get cute with me because I promise yeah, I'm you. I'm telling you the truth. I, I promise you. I thought you said you were all about the rule of law. That was in your opening statement. We are, all about and that, justice and truth. And that's why we've presented to the law enforcement agencies, which you're not. Booyah! That's right. Mark Meadows is getting all emotional, getting all testy here, and, and, and going back to mispronouncing Moynihan's last name, demanding papers from these guys, and they're like, well, you're not law enforcement, though. Anyway, here's more. Mr. Moynihan, let me just say this. We have an oversight responsibility, and I can assure you 
that when you come in here, it is incumbent upon you to be open and transparent. And we can make criminal referrals just like anybody else. Now, we cannot prosecute. You're exactly right. But what I can tell you is this, is that when you come before us and you've shared it with all kinds of entities and to not actually listen to my my good friend to my right here and say, you deserve to see the same evidence that we've shared with others, uh, I, I don't find how that actually provides a good foundation for truth and transparency. It's just I think we're looking at that, this from completely different perspectives. We are financial investigators. We do cases. We present our evidence to those jurisdictions, in this case the IRS, that would bring a case. That's not what you do. So that's why we present it to them and not to you. Okay. Well, I can assure you that we do have something here that will compel us to get the information, either from you or from the agencies. Sure. Uh, and and I, I can assure you that we will, so that my good friend to my right and the entire committee can review these documents and make their, their own claim. Final, we welcome that from you. Final question. Mr. Doyle, you said anywhere from $400 million to $2.5 billion uh, might be subject to taxation. Uh, so you're saying worst case is, in your opinion, $400 million uh, were improperly used in a charitable foundation uh, named the Clinton Foundation. Is that correct? That is correct. And it could be all of it. It could be all of it. Now, I needed to share all that with you because I had to lay the foundation. When we come back to Moynihan and Doyle a little bit later in the Doc Washburn show today, that these are legit guys, and we're going to come back to them a little bit later and how they tie Hillary Rodham Clinton into the development of COVID-19, a deadly disease that killed a lot of people. But first, Dr. Anthony Fauci is so much worse than what you have heard. And that's coming up next. Okay, AT&T recently lost a lot of money on Wall Street after their satellite outfit, DirecTV, decided to just delete Newsmax. If you want to drop AT&T or any of the big liberal cell phone carriers, I have the perfect solution for you. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. And Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veterans and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving a lot of money since I switched to Patriot Mobile. Now, when you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight 
for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. And make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Now, the great Ronald Reagan once said, Inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one. Investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. That means precious metals are an asset, commodity, or currency that maintain their value without depreciating over the long haul. And last but not least, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. So we are honored to join forces with Beverly Hills Precious Metals and its owner, Andrew Sorcini. Now, Andrew has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Andrew Sorcini and the team at Beverly Hills Precious Metals know the gold and silver business inside and out. After many years in the markets and collecting precious metals privately, Andrew opened Beverly Hills Precious Metals in 2010 to bring precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. We found out about Andrew Sorcini and Beverly Hills Precious Metals from General Michael Flynn, and we are sure glad we did. Andrew is a frequent guest On conservative podcasts, Beverly Hills Precious Metals is our gold buyer of choice. To learn more about Andrew and his team, go to bh-pm.com. The BH stands for Beverly Hills. The PM stands for Precious Metals. bh-pm.com. Now, if you can't remember that, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. No matter what search engine you use, It's the first thing that comes up. Make sure you ask about the General Mike Flynn silver coin and let him know Doc Washburn sent you. We're honored to be able to tell you about Beverly Hills Precious Metals in an effort to help you in your attempts to protect your family's finances, wealth, and investments. bh-pm.com or Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Now, you know, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people, were forced to close down. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom and pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? 
How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. Now, a lot of patron influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We are done with the woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now, an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com when it asks how you heard about us. Click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Switch to America.com. All right, coming up, Moynihan and Doyle deliver the receipts connecting Hillary Clinton to COVID-19, the China virus. But first, the great Kanakoa, kanakoa.substack.com. He's at Substack, and he's also on Twitter. He's got a big old thread. It says, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top paid U.S. federal employee, has developed bioweapons for the Pentagon since 2002. In 2014, Barack Obama shut down 18 of Fauci's gain-of-function experiments after lab leaks and 300 top scientists complained to the White House, to the Obama White House, about Fauci's dangerous bioweapons research. This is one of the remarkable things, and this is not the first time I've heard it, that Obama told Fauci, what you're doing is too dangerous, and Fauci went behind Obama's back. This is just remarkable to me because, look, let's face it, I'm not used to agreeing with Barack Obama on much of anything. That was a real shock for me. So, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he was on the Jimmy Dory show, and 
I want you to hear what he said. Now, again, he has a condition. He's a healthy guy, but he has a vocal condition. So stick with him. This is only about two minutes long, and he is bringing the goods on Fauci. The Pentagon was very worried about actually launching a full-blown bioweapons arms race because they said nobody, you know, this is very sketchy. The Patriot Act, you know, exemptions are very sketchy and people don't even know about it. And so they didn't want to do it. So they took the money that Cheney gave them, $2.2 billion, and they funneled it through NIH. And it all went through Anthony Fauci. So beginning in 2002, Anthony Fauci got a 68% raise from the Pentagon for doing bioweapons development. And he got a raise of billions of dollars a year to do it. And then he started building, doing. that's when they started doing all this gain of function. And then in 2014, three of those bugs escaped in high-profile escapes from different labs in the United States. Fauci built all these new labs at BU at Galveston to do the to do his shenanigans. And so four or three of the bugs escaped and they, they received publicity and they had smallpox and a lot of really bad things. And then Congress held hearings on it. Everybody was angry. These bugs escaped and 300 scientists, top scientists, sent letters to Obama saying you've got to shut down Anthony Fauci because he's going to create a pandemic. And so Obama ordered a moratorium, and at that time, Fauci had 18 different uh, gain-of-function experiments he was doing around the United States. But uh, Obama ordered him to shut them all down, but he didn't. He instead moved his stuff offshore to Wuhan, where he could do it out of sight, of these 300 scientists and nosy White House officials who were trying to shut him down. And they continued to do it with Ralph Barrick, the same people he was funding here, Ralph Barrick and Peter Daszak, and they moved their operations to the Wuhan lab. I mean, are you aware Robert F. Kennedy Jr. actually wrote the book, The Real Anthony Fauci? I mean, he's, he's not just talking through his hat here, but I don't know if you've ever heard it put that succinctly. But wait, there's more. Robert F. Kennedy also told Jimmy Dore that the CIA, DOD, and Dr. Fauci moved their bioweapons research to the Wuhan lab after Obama shut them down. RFK Jr. says Fauci funded the study that taught the Chinese military scientists everything China Everything in China is dual use. That lab is a military lab, and he taught them cutting-edge technology for building weapons of mass destruction. In other words, the study for how to create the clones and how to create a spike protein that could attach to a human lung and transplant it onto a coronavirus. He also funded, through Ralph Barrick, at the University of North Carolina, a technique called seamless ligation, which is a technique for hiding human tampering on that virus after you've done it. Fauci gave Barrick $212 million, and Barrick developed a technique for hiding the human tampering. 
Barak taught that to Shi Zhengli, the Chinese bat lady. U.S. aid gave ten times what Fauci gave. The DOD was there. Why were they in there teaching Chinese scientists how to build weapons of mass destruction? USAID is a CIA front group. EcoHealth Alliance is a CIA front group. The CIA modeled this outbreak in 2019 twice, the second time at Event 201. Now, who is that Event 201? Avril Haines co-hosted it with Bill Gates. And the head of the Chinese CDC, George Gao, was there. The virus was already circulating in Wuhan. Nobody knew it, but George Gao had to know it. He was the head of the Chinese CDC and their number one expert on coronaviruses. He comes to New York in October 2019 and sits down with Avril Haines, former director of the CIA, today the director of national intelligence, the top spy in the country, and they do a four-part simulation, and the fourth part is George Gao and Avril Haines talking about how do we get social media to censor people if they say this is from a lab leak. Well, I guess they kind of figure that out, right? Because we found out a lot about that from the Twitter files, haven't we? Yes, I believe we have. They figured out how to censor people who were telling them the truth. And again, this is all from Kanakoa the Great's thread over there on Twitter and his substack, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., telling Jimmy Dore anthrax was mailed to the two senators trying to block the Patriot Act in 2001, and the FBI discovered that the anthrax came from the CIA lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. Yeah, I think I remember that. He says, by the time they figured it out, they had already passed the Patriot Act, and we were in a trillion-dollar war in Iraq. What did the FBI say? The FBI said it was Ames anthrax, and the only place that it could have come from was a CIA lab in Fort Detrick. It's clear that somebody associated with the Pentagon or the CIA had something to do with that anthrax because nobody had access except those groups. Now then, by 2003, the Bush administration was requesting $2 billion in the annual budget for biodefense, and President George W. Bush announced in his State of the Union address an additional $6 billion for what he called Project BioShield. Now, I think I owe it to you to play you the clip from George W. Bush's State of the Union address in 2003 talking about that. Here it goes. I ask you tonight to add to our future security with a major research and production effort to guard our people against bioterrorism called Project BioShield. The budget I send you will propose almost $6 billion to quickly make available effective vaccines and treatments against agents like anthrax, botulinum toxin, Ebola, and plague. We must assume that our enemies would use these diseases as weapons, and we must act before the dangers are upon us. Well, 
You know what they say, the best laid plans of mice and men can sometimes go awry. But Robert Mueller was sure applauding. Anyway, the L.A. Times noted that the non-military biodefense research budget increased from $60 million in 2001 to $317 million in 2002. And the Bush administration then requested $2 billion for the non-military biodefense research budget in 2003, which exceeded the combined research budgets for breast and lung cancer, stroke, and tuberculosis. The money would fund new high-security labs and universities and government agencies for work on vaccines and treatments for biowarfare agents, but some experts questioned the security concerns of experimenting on these types of exotic pathogens. Yeah, the L.A. Times says some of the experts that doing that might generate more security concerns than they solve. Next, from archived versions of the NIAID's biodefense website, because it's no longer on online. you gotta go, You got to find the archived versions. Dr. Anthony Fauci details how the Patriot Act placed him on top of the nation's biodefense infrastructure. Did you know that? Have you heard that anywhere else? I didn't think so. Here's the quote from Fauci on the website, what it looked like back then. He said, Homeland Security is a multifaceted endeavor of which biodefense is a critical component. Our nation's ability to detect and counter bioterrorism depends to a large degree on the information generated by biomedical research on dangerous disease-causing microbes and on the immune system response to these pathogens. Much of this research is supported by the NIH and NIAID. The role of NIAID biodefense research is to develop the tools necessary to protect civilians from potential agents of bioterrorism. Sounds like that kind of backfired, doesn't it? But I digress. He continues, since the fall of 2001, the NIAID has moved quickly to accelerate basic and clinical research related to the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of diseases caused by potential agents of bioterrorism. For fiscal year 2003, the president has proposed a $1.75 billion budget and biodefense research funding for NIH, which will enable the NIAID and other NIH institutes to expand ongoing projects and establish new initiatives as part of a comprehensive and sustained biodefense research program. Oh, really? In December 2002, Anthony Fauci described how the distinction between bioweapons and biodefense does not exist, as later demonstrated by his gain-of-function research. Oh, really? Now, let's take a look at that, shall we? We needed to put into place a plan 
uh, to deal on a public health basis and on a biomedical research basis. The difficulty is this was totally uncharted grounds for us, so I found myself, um, again, uh, never imagining that I would be doing this, needing to learn from people that I never thought I would be learning things from, namely bioweaponers, people who were our own bioweaponers in the United States decades ago, uh, international figures, people from other countries, the UK, and also, and importantly, defectors, uh, particularly from the Soviet Union, who had vast experience in the ways of biowarfare. And what I learned very quickly, that if we're going to mount a defensive program to guard the homeland against bioterror, we had to understand some fundamental things that may seem obvious, but when you're planning a multi-billion dollar program, they're not so obvious. I see. So next, Kanakoa links to an article entitled how Dick Cheney created Anthony Fauci. And this is over at unheard.com, U-N-H-E-R-D. And the article is written by Ashley Reinsberg, author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. Article from August 29th, 2022 says, few people in America today are as powerful and polarizing as Anthony Fauci. For the left, Fauci is a consummate, cool-headed scientist, emblematic of the essential role of government. On the right, he's a deep state operative who destroyed the lives of countless people to serve a hidden agenda, all while mysteriously taking home a bigger paycheck than any other of the country's two million federal employees including their collective boss, the president. The reality is that both narratives fundamentally misunderstand the position Fauci occupies in American government. Far from being a public health expert, Fauci sits at the very top of America's biodefense infrastructure. And contrary to the notion that he is a deep state string puller of the Democrat Party, It was George W. Bush and Dick Cheney who not only put Fauci there, but created the very framework that the immunologist physician commands. This in part accounts for the otherwise inexplicable fact that Fauci, loathed by President Trump, was never fired by the notoriously vengeful politician who galvanized his brand with the phrase, you're fired. But Fauci's untouchability raises an even now more perplexing question, which is, why did the media beatify him as the country's beneficent, infallible COVID savior rather than look into the reality of his position and the source of his nearly limitless power. To understand the rise of Fauci and his legacy as he retires this year, again, this is August of last year, we must return to the first months of the 2000s when a hawkish new administration was settling into power. While George W. Bush had come to Washington touting a new brand of compassionate conservatism, Cheney 
came carrying decades of Defense Department experience, including a term as Defense Secretary under George H.W. Bush during Operation Desert Storm. Bush's interest in biodefense and pandemic preparedness is frequently traced back to a 2004 book, The Great Influenza. The reality, however, is that the administration came to power with biological weapons and infectious disease very much top of mind, with Cheney seeking to address the gaping hole in America's national security left by the country's lack of a coherent biodefense strategy. But if biodefense wasn't already a priority for the Bush White House, that swiftly changed a week to the day after the 9-11 attacks a mere eight months into Bush's first term when the United States suffered the most serious biological weapons attack in its history. On September 18, 2001, a number of national media outlets, including CBS News, NBC News, ABC News, the New York Post, and the National Enquirer, each received a series of letters containing a dry white powder. Three weeks later, a second round of letters was sent to the offices of Senators Tom Daschle, then Senate Majority Leader, and Patrick Leahy, head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Twenty-two people were infected with anthrax, five of whom died. Already in a state of unprecedented military alert, the United States was sent into near chaos by the anthrax attacks, which by essentially weaponizing the postal system with one of the world's most lethal pathogens, engendered a sense that the country was under attack by an unseen enemy with unfathomable capabilities. Now, Bush has been rightly credited with identifying the threat of a global pandemic as well as providing a serious policy for dealing with the spread of HIV, AIDS in Africa. But it was Cheney who served as the political engine behind a paradigm shift that would soon take place in America's biodefense strategy. Six days before the 9-11 attacks, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee convened a hearing on the threat of bioterrorism and the spread of infectious diseases. The hearing was led by Joe Biden, then chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and included testimony by experts in strategic defense. In a prepared statement, Bill Frist, a physician who served as a Republican senator until 2007, noted that, and I quote, any threat to the security of the United States from a weapon of mass destruction, even those with low probability of occurrence but high potential consequence, including biological weapons, must be taken seriously through adequate preparation, unquote. The administration's first landmark achievement in this effort was the creation of a presidential directive called Biodefense for the 21st Century. Signed by Bush in April 2004, it advanced a comprehensive framework for America's biodefense based on the assumption that a bioweapons attack could devastate America. 
Despite being premised on a different intent and attack, the framework described a scenario chillingly similar to what the world experienced with COVID-19, warning that a bioweapons attack could result in catastrophic numbers of casualties, long-term disease and disability, psychological trauma, and mass panic, disrupt critical sectors of the economy and the day-to-day lives of Americans and create cascading international effects by disrupting and damaging international trade relationships, potentially globalizing the impacts of an attack on United States soil. That the directive warned about a biological catastrophe resulting from an attack rather than an unintentional outbreak was a seemingly natural assumption in the aftermath of 9-11. But even in June 2001, a small number of senior policymakers spent two days running a simulation of a bioweapons attack. It was called Dark Winter. It was designed by the Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, and it was based on a putative smallpox attack. It was intended less to bolster preparedness than to expose vulnerabilities. The operation showed how quickly a public health disaster could lead to widespread chaos and social collapse. This was the stuff nightmares are made of, and by all accounts, Those were the nightmares that Dick Cheney was having. Significant as it was, his transformation of America's biodefense framework was part of a much larger repositioning of long-term geopolitical strategy, an effort also led by Cheney. In the aftermath of the Soviet Union's collapse in the early 90s, Cheney, then Secretary of Defense under George H.W. Bush, along with Undersecretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, began formulating a grand strategy for the post-Cold War era. This plan, revealed in an infamous leaked memo, was rooted in a single strategic objective. America should permanently remain the world's superpower. Its architects argued the U.S. would do so only by preserving strategic depth to shape the security environment. The initial leaked memo was later reworked by Cheney's chief of staff, Scooter Libby, who broadened the concept of strategic depth to cover not only geographic reach, but also an ability to wage war with weapons that could not only cripple an enemy's military capabilities, but disrupt its political, economic, and social stability. In this context, the Bush administration began ramping up biodefense spending, which quintupled to $317 million in 2002 alone. But that same year, an unusual respiratory disease started to spread in the Guangdong region of China, eventually classified as severe acute Respiratory syndrome, or SARS, the disease would claim the lives of some 800 people as it spread across Asia, Europe, North America, the Mideast, reaching as far as New Zealand. Although SARS was contained by the summer of 03, 
That year, the world witnessed the outbreak of yet another respiratory disease. In this case, it was the reemergence of an avian influenza in the form of a strain known as H5N1, which had long been identified as having pandemic potential. The virus is found to have a terrifying 60% mortality rate. By 2003, the Bush administration was requesting $2 billion in annual budget for biodefense, a sum that, as the L.A. Times noted, exceeded the combined research budgets for breast cancer, lung cancer, stroke, and tuberculosis. That year, Bush announced in his State of the Union address that he would propose a further $6 billion for the development and stockpiling of vaccines over the subsequent decade in addition to baseline biodefense funding. Now, the money was essential, but transforming a core element of America's national strategic defense was as much about restructuring the government, governmental and human aspects of biodefense as it was funding them. In the case of research-based bioweapons preparedness, Cheney's masterstroke was to remove the fragmented biodefense research programs from various departments, institutes, and centers and place them all under the aegis of a single institute, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, led then, as now, by Anthony Fauci. Now, remember, this is August of last year when the article was written. A 2003 NIAID article detailed what the shift meant for the relatively obscure public health agency. It said in 2003, NIAID was assigned lead responsibility for civilian biodefense research with a focus on research and early development of medical countermeasures against terrorist attacks from infectious diseases and radiation exposures. NIAID later assumed responsibility for coordinating the NIH-wide effort to develop medical countermeasures against threats to the civilian population. Now, while the statement is laden with references to civilian research and included a crucial caveat that explains much about its role right through the COVID-19 pandemic, it said because new potentially deadly pathogens such as avian influenza may be naturally occurring as well as deliberately introduced by terrorists, NIAID's biodefense research is integrated into its larger emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases portfolio. In other words, as far as NIAID was concerned, there was no meaningful administrative distinction between biodefense and scientific research. With a stroke of Dick Cheney's pen, all U.S. biodefense efforts, classified or unclassified, were placed under, under the aegis of Anthony Fauci. So important was this new command structure that a representative from the office of Scooter Libby, Cheney's powerful chief of staff, was physically placed in NIAID headquarters in Washington during the transition to function as a kind of political commissar from the vice president's office. This gave Fauci unparalleled access to not just Vice President Cheney, but also President George W. Bush, to whom he had an open channel. Fauci now had a virtual carte blanche to not only merely approve 
but design and run the kind of research projects he sought and could do so with no oversight structure above him. Biodefense projects that formerly would have fallen under the authority of military or intelligence agencies were now under Anthony Fauci's direct supervision. And he didn't have to answer to anybody. It's this that explains one of the most bewildering irregularities surrounding Anthony Fauci, his compensation. As widely reported, Fauci is the highest paid member of the federal government, out-earning the president, four-star generals, senators, and Supreme Court justices. His salary roughly doubled that of his own nominal boss until recently, NIH Director Francis Collins. Fauci's giant pay packet can be traced back to 2004, the year after NIAID was made the country's top biodefense authority agency. According to a report by Forbes, that year, NIH Deputy Director Raynard S. Kingston wrote a formal memo to the agency's then-director, Elias Zerhoni, to request that the current retention allowance, which the amount was redacted, for Dr. Anthony Fauci be converted in order to appropriately compensate him for the level of his responsibility in his current position of director, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, National Institutes of Health, NIH, especially as it relates to his work on biodefense research activities. Now, this salary jump was only a byproduct of the radical restructuring of America's biodefense apparatus. The much more significant outcome was that Fauci was essentially placed at the top of a new chain of command over which he gained nearly total decision-making ability. He went from being the director of one of the NIH's constituent 27 institutes to being the only one who really mattered. But it was Fauci's ability to span the divide between science and politics to play ball that made him essential to the political echelon. The rapid increase in biodefense funding in the post-9-11 world and the mushrooming of agencies and departments involved in the endeavor would inevitably draw critics. One was, and still is, Richard Ebright, a major figure in the world of epidemiology who serves as chair of the Board of Governors and and is a professor of chemistry and chemical biology at Rutgers University. Ebright told the L.A. Times in 03, this well-intentioned response may perversely have exactly the opposite effect implying that the burgeoning field of biodefense research could lead to leaks, failures, and even a bioweapons arms race. But by then, the Bush administration had hired a man credible enough to respond to and in many ways outshine the critics. Fauci told the LA Times it's going to be a challenge dismissing Ebright's concern as spurious. He said, but I have every confidence that the biomedical research community will adapt well to the change. Almost two decades later, as he heads toward retirement, again, this is August of 2022, his confidence seems misplaced. Perhaps in this we have another crucial lesson from the pandemic. 
that Marvel comic book-like heroes with all their fabulous abilities are no replacement for the facts. Wow, y'all. Okay, so that is Ashley Rinsberg, or Rinsberg as the case may be, over at unheard.com, how Dick Cheney created Anthony Fauci. Oh, my goodness. Kanakoa continues his thread at Substack and Twitter. He says, it's this that explains one of the most bewildering irregularities surrounding Anthony Fauci's compensation. So they got the quote on that from the article in the next tweet. Then he says, Dr. Fauci was approved for a permanent pay adjustment in December 2004 to appropriately compensate him for the level of responsibility, especially as it relates to his work on biodefense research activities. Again, another quote from the article, but, but they got this. 2004 through 2007, Fauci received a 68% pay increase from 200,000 a year to 335,000 a year. Also, in 2014, reports of high-profile lab blunders at U.S. government labs involving anthrax, bird flu, and smallpox hit the press. And he links to Newsweek, USA Today, and Nature.com. And here's the quote. The United States has spent billions on the Project BioShield Act, a program meant to keep its citizens safe from bioterrorists. Despite these good intentions... That program may have put the nation at greater risk of a homegrown disease escaping from a lab and quickly infecting millions. That's because while the real threat of bioterror is minimal, there have been only a handful of such attacks in modern history and none since 2001. The risk of bioerror instead of bioterror, the risk of bioerror is actually quite high. How about them apples? Conicola the Great continues. More than 300 top scientists penned an open letter demanding that President Barack Obama shut down Dr. Anthony Fauci's dangerous gain-of-function research. The authors included four Nobel laureates. Wow, really? Four guys that got the Nobel Prize. Okay. The authors included four Nobel laureates and scientists from Harvard, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, Yale, MIT, UCLA, Oxford, Princeton, and all of the world's top universities. And he's got a screenshot. Cambridge Working Group Consensus Statement on the Creation of Potential Pandemic Pathogens. It says recent incidents involving smallpox, anthrax, and bird flu some of the top U.S. laboratories, remind us of the fallibility of even the most secure laboratories, reinforcing the urgent need for a thorough reassessment of biosafety. Such incidents have been accelerating and have been occurring on average over twice a week with regulated pathogens in academic and government labs across the country. An accidental infection with any pathogen is concerning, but accident risks with newly created potential pandemic pathogens raise grave new concerns. 
laboratory creation of highly transmissible, novel strains of dangerous viruses, especially but not limited to influenza, poses substantially increased risks. An accidental infection in such a setting could trigger outbreaks that would be difficult or impossible to control. Historically, new strains of influenza, once they establish transmission in the human population, have affected a quarter or more of the world's population within two years. For any experiment, the expected net benefits should outweigh the risks. Experiments involving the creation of potential pandemic pathogens should be curtailed until there has been a quantitative, objective, and credible assessment of the risks, potential benefits, and opportunities for risk mitigation, as well as comparison against safer experimental approaches. A modern version of the Asilomar process, which engaged scientists in proposing rules to manage research on recombinant DNA, could be a starting point to identify the best approaches to achieve the global public health goals of defeating pandemic disease and assuring the highest levels of safety. Whenever possible, safer approaches should be pursued in preference to any approach that risks an accidental pandemic. So they begged Obama to shut Fauci down. What's was it, uh, 300 top scientists from all over the world. Canicola the Great continues, October 2014, President Obama announced a pause on Dr. Anthony Fauci's dangerous gain-of-function experiments. And he's got the link to the article from uh, science.org. Big headline, U.S. halts funding for new risky virus studies calls for voluntary moratorium. Subhead, no grants for flu, SARS, or MERS while government pursues one-year risk analysis. Jocelyn Kaiser and David Malikoff wrote that over at uh, Science Magazine. Kanakoa continues. Like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. told Jimmy Dore, Obama's moratorium paused 18 gain-of-function experiments, according to the NIH. Here's a screenshot from Science Magazine. It says, on October 17th, in an unusual move, U.S. government halted federal funding for risky studies on MERS, SARS, or influenza that tweak these viruses to make them more pathogenic or transmissible by respiration in mammals. Among the 18 stopped projects, or at least five working on uh, on adapting the MERS virus to mice in order to generate a strain that sickens the animals. That could ease studies aimed at understanding the virus and developing vaccines and drugs. Canico the Great continues, saying Dr. Anthony Fauci's NIAID sent 18 letters to 14 institutions telling them to halt their gain-of-function experiments. Kanako the Great continues. He says, after the pause on gain-of-function research, Dr. Anthony Fauci, USAID, again a CIA front, DOD, and other U.S. government agencies 
worked with Dr. Peter Dajak's EcoHealth Alliance and Dr. Ralph Barrick to transfer Fauci's coronavirus research to talk to Dr. Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There is a well-documented scientific paper trail of Dr. Fauci funding Dr. Barrick's bioweapons research and that knowledge being transferred to Dr. Shi Jing Li at the Wuhan lab. And boy, talk about bringing the receipts. He has a bunch of links to all kinds of papers over at NIH. And he has a link and a screenshot, MIT Technology Review. Pandemic Technology Project Inside the Risky Bat Virus Engineering That Links America to Wuhan by Rowan Jacobson, June 29, 2021, subtitle China Emulated U.S. Techniques to Construct Novel Coronaviruses in Unsafe Conditions. Here is the quote, though. The NIH decided the risk was worth it and a potentially fateful decision it funded work similar to Ralph Barrick's at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which soon used its own reverse genetics technology to make numerous coronavirus chimeras. Unnoticed by most, however, was a key difference that significantly shifted the risk calculation. The Chinese work was carried out at biosafety level 2, a much lower tier than Ralph Barrick's biosafety level three. Kanakoa continues. He says, that's why Senator Rand Paul accused Dr. Fauci of funding super virus research in the U.S. and making a huge mistake by trading the know-how to China. Fauci denied the accusation, though. So let's check that out. Let's listen to exactly... What happens here when Dr. Anthony Fauci straight up lies to another doctor who happens to be U.S. Senator Rand Paul? I don't know how many times I can say it, Madam Chair. We did not fund gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. In our health lead, we now know that a bat coronavirus was enhanced in a lab. NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute. The National Institutes of Health acknowledged that it funded research of a virus that was studied at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The experiment unexpectedly, we're told, made a bat coronavirus more contagious than the original naturally occurring one. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. A new letter raising questions about experiments in a Wuhan lab. What was, let me finish. Take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. You're saying that's not gain of function. Yeah, that is correct. And, And Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. 
For years, the National Institutes of Health provided grant money to the Eco Health Alliance Research Group, which conducted experiments with bat coronaviruses in Wuhan, China. And if anybody is lying here, Senator, it is you. That's where you are getting. Let me finish. We don't know. Well, don't wait know. a minute. It didn't I come can... the lab, but all the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab. You. And there will be responsibility for those who funded the lab, including yourself. National Institute of Health admitted this week that it funded controversial gain-of-function research using coronaviruses at a lab in China at the epicenter of the pandemic. Contradicting claims from Dr. Anthony Fauci that American tax dollars never paid for that kind of research. I have not lied before Congress. I have never lied, certainly not before Congress. Case closed. His own agency contradicted him. Of course he was lying. Kanakoa the Great continues, but even Dr. Robert Redfield, former CDC director, told Congress last week that he believes Dr. Anthony Fauci used American taxpayer dollars to fund the bioweapons research that created COVID-19. Dr. Fauci was affirmatively told in an email that uh, NIAID had a monetary relationship with the Wuhan uh, Institute through uh, EcoHealth Alliance. He, By the way, this is... Uh, U.S. Representative Maliotokas, a Republican, uh, New York. He was told this in January 27th of 2020. Do you think that Dr. Fauci intentionally lied under oath to Senator Paul when he vehemently denied NIH's funding of gain-of-function research? I think there's no doubt that NIH was funding gain-of-function research. Is it likely that American tax dollars funded the gain-of-function research that created this virus? I think it did, not only from NIH, but from the State Department, USAID, and from DOD. I'm out of time. Thank you very much. DOD. Again, Dick Cheney put Fauci over all this stuff. Just so you know. Maybe should have vetted him a little bit more. What do you think? Kind of cool. The great says, and that's why Robert Kennedy Jr. told Jimmy Dore that Dr. Anthony Fauci has been the American czar of bioweapons since 2002. And the book is available. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Subtitled, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the New York Times bestselling author. I want to check it out. Now, I've been promising you that we're going to get back to Moynihan and Doyle and the connection between Hillary Clinton and COVID. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I think it's my responsibility to share with you what attorney Aaron Siri said recently over at Epic Times on the Epic TV about how it came to pass that vaccine manufacturers received immunity from lawsuits by the United States government. I mean, you, you do want to know why that happened, right? Well, here it is. When I looked into it just a little further, it didn't take much to scratch the surface. Um, and you say, okay, well, why? Then why did they get this immunity? And this is... You know, you can read the uh, Wyatt v. Brucewitz, U.S. Supreme Court decision from 2011, that even discusses it. And, and part of what it explains is that the immunity, that the, excuse me, liability that vaccine manufacturers were facing leading up to 1986 was so great that either Congress had to step in and give them immunity liability, or the, at that point, the three routine vaccines given to children. That's all there was, three. And there was only one manufacturer left for each, they were going to stop producing those vaccines because they could not make a profit. 
because the amount of liability they had to pay exceeded the revenue. But that's how it works in America. If your product is causing more harm than it is good, and the way we measure it, for better or worse in America, is by dollars, then you got to go and make a better product. you got to go make a safer product. And had Congress just done nothing and just let the market forces do what they do, those vaccine manufacturers, would they have just gone out of business? No, they're in the business to make, to make money. They would have probably retooled and made a better product, presumably, a safer product. But Congress, in its wisdom, said, it's okay. You know what? You can keep selling your vaccines that are causing a level of harm that is making you almost go out of business. We'll just give you immunity so nobody can sue you. So the vaccine manufacturers were given immunity to liability for their product. And not only for the three vaccines that were routinely given then, but for any future routinely recommended childhood vaccines, prospectively. And it was that act, it was that uh, um, immunity to liability that, in my opinion, has set off the cascade of events that we now see manifesting today around these products, how they're viewed, how the public views them, how our health authorities treat them, how pharma has been able to basically run amok. There is no other product that I'm aware of that is afforded this level of protection. When you look around you, all the products you experience every day, they're safer because the manufacturer is worried about liability. Your car is safer, not because some regulatory agency, maybe to some degree, it's because they don't want to get sued. They don't want to have to pay billions of dollars in damages. And virtually every product you interact with in America every day, and the manufacturers are able to be sued for design defects, claims that the product could have been made safer claims that they failed you to warn about risks. But you can't sue pharmaceutical companies with regards to those claims in the same way for vaccine products. And what that has essentially done, it has left pharmaceutical companies to, uh, for the last over almost 40 years to completely control the narrative around these products. And they've done a very good job in making sure that the people, the public, think their product's great. I think it was important to share that with you. All right. Now, having said that, let us let us get back to Moynihan and Doyle and the connection to put Hillary with COVID. Now, they start off saying it's very important to take a look at this short article over at justthenews.com from March 16th entitled As COVID Origin Secrets Near Declassification Wuhan Labs Ties to China Military Burst into Focus. Are you paying attention? I hope you are. It says, as Joe Biden weighs whether to sign a law passed unanimously by Congress, so both parties, to declassify U.S. intelligence on the origins of the COVID-19 virus, new evidence has emerged that the State Department and National Institutes of Health routed at least $1.7 million in tax money to a Wuhan virology lab despite evidence It was tied to the Chinese military and possibly the communist nation's bioweapons program, according to government documents reviewed by justthenews.com. The U.S. first declared 
in a 2005 State Department document that Communist China maintained an offensive biological weapons program in violation of its treaty commitments and that it was run in part by an arm of the People's Liberation Army, Academy of Military Medical Sciences. That report specifically cited the PLA's Academy of Military Medical Sciences, Fifth Institute, as the epicenter of China's bioweapons program. And then John Solomon links to the PDF of the document. It's back in 05, a decade later. Multiple medical publications emerged from China that linked the AMMS, the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, Sciences of the People's Liberation Army to research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the very lab that the FBI, the Energy Department, and other U.S. intelligence agencies believe was a source of a leak that started the COVID-19 pandemic in late 2019. It's also the same lab that received grants from a contractor working for Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, the foreign aid arm of the State Department. The ties between AMMS and the Wuhan lab sat in plain view for years before the pandemic started, according to these federal documents that John Solomon got a look at. For instance, a 2015 study posted on the NIH's National Library of Medicine site shows collaboration between the Wuhan lab and AAMS on anthrax spores. Several other studies between 2015 and 2019 also listed both Chinese science organizations as collaborators. One of the most troubling links cited in an unclassified report released in in December by the House Intelligence Committee was a 2015 book in which China scientists tied to both AMMS and the Wuhan lab declared that coronaviruses were the leading edge of a new era of genetic weapons warfare. The committee reported, and I quote, in 2015, the official publishing house of the AMMS released a book titled The Unnatural Origin of SARS and New Species of Artificial Humanized Viruses as Genetic Weapons. The book was produced and edited using 18 experts, 16 of whom were officers at AMMS or other People's Liberation Army research centers. Indeed, one of the editors not only works for the Fifth Institute, but also has a long history of collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, having co-authored 12 scientific papers with personnel from it. The central premise of the AMMS book is that SARS-CoV-1 the strain of coronavirus that caused the 2002 SARS outbreak, did not emerge naturally, but was a chimeric virus artificially engineered as a genetic weapon to infect humans. The book described the PLA researchers' broader belief that other nations are developing chimeric coronaviruses 
to use as genetic weapons. The authors described how to create weaponized chimeric SARS coronaviruses, the potentially broader scope for their use compared to traditional bioweapons, and the benefits of being able to plausibly deny that such chimeric coronaviruses were artificially created rather than naturally occurring. And he links to the full House Intelligence Committee report from 2022. While tantalizing, the declassified information about China's military ties to bioweapons research in the Wuhan lab understates the problem compared to what is known in secret, according to Senator Roger Doc Marshall, Republican of Kansas, a medical doctor, and one of the first members of Congress to dispute claims that COVID-19 could have evolved naturally from the wild. Dr. Marshall said that a lab-created COVID virus may be scary, but far less lethal than what an engineered bird flu virus might one day unleash on humanity, and there's far too little oversight of how U.S. agencies are funding such research. He told the John Solomon Reports podcast on Thursday, there's gross abuse of our grant research dollars and so much commingling. USAID is doing research on viral gain of function in Wuhan, China. USAID was for international development. They're way outside of their lane. But ultimately, what China's goal here is to get the DNA of every person, of every animal, of every plant. And you can just imagine what you could do with that. There's some incredibly good things you can do about it, but then you could also have a COVID virus, a Frankenstein virus that came from a lab in Wuhan, China, and everything in between. So what we're dealing with here is really something a million times more powerful than a nuclear weapon. Former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told Just the News on Thursday evening that the vast open-source intelligence that highlighted the risks of the Wuhan lab and its ties to China's military should have been a red flag for Fauci at NIH and the intelligence community. Fauci's subsequent effort to downplay the possibility of COVID-19 leaked from a lab and instead came from nature, had long-ranging consequences, according to Meadows, who also said that included stifling intelligence community efforts to alert the public on the lab leak theory. Meadows said in the intelligence community, we had concerns. Most of Americans would have concerns if they knew. It is troubling because Dr. Fauci not only knew, but Dr. Fauci should have known about a number of other things. And then all of a sudden, He went on kind of a PR tour in defense of this natural contagion that supposedly happened from a market there. Listen, we got two agencies that say right now that they have some degree of confidence there was a lab leak, as you reported accurately. Myself and President Trump mentioned this long ago, that we had seen information that led us to believe that this was not just a coincidence. Okay, so that's the end of the Meadows quote. John Solomon continues in the article, though, saying, there's clear evidence that the intelligence community, the State Department, and NIH knew for years before the pandemic of the ties between a body suspected of Chinese biowarfare research and the Wuhan lab. For instance, the State Department released a fact sheet 
on the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2021 that disclosed that the United States was aware that the lab had been conducting risky research on coronaviruses since 2016 and had been tied to secret Chinese military research for years. State Department said, despite the Wuhan Institute of Virology, or WIV, presenting itself as a civilian institution, the United States has determined that the WIV has collaborated on publications and secret projects with China's military. WIV has engaged in classified research, including laboratory animal experiments, on behalf of the Chinese military since at least 2017. The House Intelligence Committee disclosed that NIH and its parent, Health and Human Services, HHS, also knew of serious risks tied to projects it was funding both through AAMS and the Wuhan lab. The report said, based on our investigation, we conclude that the Department of Health and Human Services was aware of serious national security risks associated with AMMS. Nevertheless, public reporting has claimed grant money from HHS components flowed to AMS researchers. John Solomon says there are several grants from federal agencies that flowed to the Wuhan Institute of Virology that have been confirmed to date. NIH has admitted it funded the EcoHealth Alliance, which in turn issued subgrants to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for research that NIH belatedly acknowledged had enhanced a bat coronavirus to make mice sicker. A recent audit conducted by the HHS Inspector General estimated more than $598,000 of the money that NIH gave EcoHealth ultimately was paid to the Wuhan lab. That audit also found the Chinese had refused to provide documentation on how the money was spent. The report stated, EcoHealth requests the information from WIV. However, based on records reviewed, we did not see evidence that EcoHealth obtained the scientific documentation. EcoHealth officials confirmed to us that WIV had not been responsive to its request to provide the scientific documentation and indicated it was unlikely to receive the requested information. As a result, EcoHealth has been unable to comply with NIH's request on this matter. And he's got the link to the full audit there in case you want to, you know, take a look at it. U.S. Representative Guy Reschenthaler, Republican Pennsylvania, reported that his team uncovered a second pot of money that EcoHealth Alliance routed to the Wuhan lab from USAID. The congressman disclosed last year Between October 2009 and May 2019, USAID provided a total of $1.1 million to the EcoHealth Alliance for a subagreement with the WIV. The funding went toward advancing research on viruses that could pose harm to human and animal health. The House Intelligence Committee now says that the Government Accountability Office the nonpartisan investigative arm of Congress has uncovered other monies from federal and military agencies that flowed to both the Wuhan lab and other AMS entities, including the bioweapons-centered Fifth Institute that was first flagged by the State Department in 2005. A final total and list of federal grants 
to those entities is expected to be made public in a few weeks. The recent House Intel report said, at the committee's request, GAO is conducting a comprehensive accounting of all public funds the U.S. government dispersed, whether directly or indirectly, from January 2014 through December 2021 to AMMS and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. In November 2022, GAO provided committee staff an update on its work, confirming that grant money from HHS components flowed to the AMMS Fifth Institute via subawards, via subawards from certain U.S. universities. The committee does not know if the scientists who funneled this money to the Fifth Institute, a known component of China's bioweapons program, were among the experts the intelligence community consulted regarding COVID-19's origins. The extensive ties between China's military and the Wuhan lab are likely to come into sharper focus if Biden signs a declassification law or if Congress overrides him should he veto the bill. Officials said the classified version of the House Intelligence Committee report is one of the richest catalogs of the ties and should be among the first released to the public. In the meantime, an essential question has already arisen from the documents reviewed by JustTheNews.com, which is how could multiple federal agencies dispense taxpayer monies to Chinese institutions linked to research and military entities that posed so much national security risk to America? Gee, it sounds like laws are broken to me, but I digress. Former Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf told Justin News on Thursday night, that the answer lies in the unchecked power that a large federal administrative state now wields, including the power to act without political overseer's blessings. Does that go back to Dick Cheney putting Anthony Fauci in charge of everything? Chad Wolf said on the Just the News No Noise television show, a lot of these decisions are done below political leadership in many of these departments by career bureaucrats who take it upon themselves to make some very difficult and very high-level decisions about sending money to certain places and the like. And I think that's something that we need to take a look at. Uh, yeah. Security experts also say the U.S. intelligence community shares some blame for not more aggressively policing U.S. funding or dangerous research projects, or publicly challenging the notion that COVID-19 emerged through natural evolution when so much of the evidence conflicted with it. Former Defense Intelligence Agency officer Rebecca Koffler recently declared that U.S. intelligence has failed to adequately safeguard Americans from China's bioweapons aspirations. She wrote in a recent column in the New York Post, American spy agencies, when pressed by the House Intelligence Committee, what they knew about the deadly virus failed to come clean. The agencies concealed from the oversight panels, and therefore the American people, that COVID-19 is consistent with China's biological warfare doctrine and the long-term programs Beijing has invested in to weaponize viruses. She said, most curiously, they withheld key intelligence from the oversight committees regarding the extent of China's much-discussed gain-of-function research. Programs aimed at increasing the transmissibility and virulence of highly dangerous pathogens through genetic manipulation 
if they're so sure of their conclusion, they, why withhold this crucial information? Now, evidence from the House Intelligence Committee's full report, if released through declassification, is likely to bolster her argument. In its unclassified summary, it wrote, We conclude that there are indications that SARS-CoV-2 may have been tied to China's biological weapons research program and spilled over to the human population during a lab-related incident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The intelligence community should be transparent, it added, regarding what it does or does not know regarding the relationship between the public between the People's Liberation Army's 5th Institute of the Academy of Military and Medical Sciences, AMMS, which China has publicly admitted conducts bioweapons research and coronavirus experiments, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, particularly during 2019. Have you heard about this from anywhere? Because I haven't before I shared it with you. But see, that's what we do here. That's what we do. We share with you stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else. So, now we get into it with Larry Doyle and John Moynihan, Clinton Foundation whistleblowers. We followed their recommendation, read that article, which is what they asked us to do in their first tweet of this thread as COVID origin secrets near declassification Wuhan labs ties to China military burst into focus. And then they say, let's zero in on this statement. And the quote is, USAID is doing research on viral gain of function in Wuhan, China. USAID was for international development. They are way outside of their lane. Larry Doyle says outside their lane, just as we testified regarding the Clinton Foundation operating outside IRS approval. Remember, we had that earlier in the show. Larry Doyle says, when did the USAID-funded research on viral gain of function begin? Well, he links to a statement here from Guy Reschenthaler, Republican congressman from Pennsylvania, Rashenthaler uncovers 1.1 million in taxpayer funding sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Representative Rashenthaler reported that his team uncovered a second pot of money that EcoHealth Alliance routed to the Wuhan lab from USAID between October 09 and May 2019. USAID provided a total of 1.1 million to the EcoHealth Alliance for a subagreement with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Larry Doyle also says, beginning in 2009, oh my, so early and so interesting. Why? Well, who oversaw USAID in 2009? And then he links to a report from Foreign Policy, which is a big magazine about foreign policy. And this report in Foreign Policy is dated December 1st, 2009. And it says, as the entire development community was trying to gauge the impact of the ascension 
of Rajiv Shah to the top position at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. The nominee himself gave the most detailed look yet into his intellectual identity as he gets ready to step into the fray. In a long list of detailed answers to questions submitted in advance of his Senate Foreign Relations Committee testimony Tuesday, again, this is back in 2009, Shah weighed in on a number of substantive issues while deferring to ongoing reviews at both the State Department and the National Security Council when it came to matters related to the structure of USAID and its relationship with the State Department. Shah will report directly to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Larry Doyle says, oh, wow. So, so Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, had direct control. What was USAID up to beginning in 2009? This international aid agency launched an effort known as PREDICT, and they linked to an article on that. What was this all about? We read, PREDICT was initiated in 2009 to strengthen global capacity for detection and discovery of viruses, of viruses with pandemic potential that can move between animals and people. Larry Doyle says, hey now, a 2009 launch of a program to detect viruses for which Tony Fauci and company had already begun research on with funding provided by USAID itself. See how this works? Did somebody say it smells like an arsonist who's also taking fire prevention classes? You think? Let's keep going. Who was involved in the PREDICT effort? We read, PREDICT project implementing partners are University of California Davis, EcoHealth Alliance, Metabiota Incorporated, formerly Global Viral Forecasting Incorporated, Smithsonian Institution, and Wildlife Conservation Society with support from Columbia and Harvard Universities. There is that EcoHealth Alliance again, involved right from the get-go. Metabiota? What do we learn about this outfit? He has a link to an article from the Daily Mail. Hunter Biden and his colleagues invested half a million dollars in Metabiota through their firm, Rosemont Seneca Technology Partners. Larry Doyle says, looks like Metabiota was involved in a lot more than just implementing the PREDICT program for USAID, but the connections to Burisma and Ukraine are for another thread. Don't forget about that, by the way. What were the universities involved in supporting PREDICT? Oh, yes, Columbia and Harvard. When did we first see them in the midst of this cabal? Let's go back to late 2003, when the Clinton Foundation launched its IRS unapproved effort known as Clinton HIV AIDS Initiative Consortium. Again, we heard the testimony that Doyle Moynihan gave to Mark Meadows' Oversight Committee about that, right? And here is the quote from the Clinton Foundation statement on that. Its partners include Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, the Harvard AIDS, the Harvard AIDS Institute, the Harvard Medical School. Cha-ching! 
Larry Doyle says, back to USAID in 2009, who ran it while reporting directly to Hillary Clinton, an individual named Rajiv Shah. Where was he prior to taking that role as director of USAID in 2009? From his LinkedIn profile, Rajiv Shah worked for eight years prior to heading up USAID at, yes, you could have guessed it, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What is Rajiv Shah doing now and for the past six years? President of the Rockefeller Foundation, which is centrally engaged with World Economic Forum. Back to John Solomon's fabulous story and a concluding comment. An essential question has already arisen from the documents reviewed by Just the News. How could multiple federal agencies dispense taxpayer monies to Chinese institutions linked to research and military entities that posed so much national security risk to America? Former Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf told Justin News on Thursday night that the answer lies in the unchecked power that a large federal administrative state now wields, including the power to act without political overseer's blessing. Larry Doyle says administrative state, national security risk. Yes, folks, this is the center of the swamp, also known as the deep state. But where was the inspector general at State Department during this time? Oh, that's right. As the Wall Street Journal highlights, State Department lacked a top watchdog during Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. What does that say about President Obama and his vice president at the time, Joe Biden? Well, his boy Hunter was involved via investment in Metabiota, so no surprise. All of what I lay out here is central to the efforts my partner, John Moynihan, and I undertook going back to late 2015. We shared extensive documented evidence from August 2017 to mid-2019 prior to our winning appeal to bring our case into the U.S. tax court that laid out much of this roadmap for federal agencies to pursue. All of this might be frustrating for countless millions of our fellow American citizens and global friends, allies, and all those who treasure peace, liberty, health, and prosperity. I will be frustrated as well, but I am not at all. Why so? I've never been more confident that meaningful justice will prevail in U.S. Tax Court Docket 4865-19W, Doyle Moynihan versus IRS, and that is Clinton Foundation whistleblowers, we will gain victory in that process, and diabolical efforts like this will be fully exposed, and the public will win. He says, please follow our efforts, share our account, and monitor our case linked in our pinned tweet. So he takes you to Clinton Foundation whistleblowers, Doyle Moynihan versus IRS in the United States Tax Court. And this is from July 2nd, 2022. After a three-plus-month hiatus from this platform on Twitter, I welcome relaunching this account given that our case has been partially unsealed and can now be publicly tracked. And he's got the link. He says, what about our case? The docket record is fully listed. 
The judge's orders are unsealed, while filings made by us and the IRS are listed, yet still under seal. Key dates. October 8, 2020. Judge rules IRS abused its discretion in handling our WB submission and denies. A whistleblower's submission and denies and denies the IRS request for summary judgment. In other words, IRS requested dismissal, dismissal, and the judge denied that. That's major. April 22nd, 2021, judge orders case remanded to IRS for investigation and development of the record to determine whether IRS criminal investigation proceeded with an investigation. Recall that our whistleblower submission is a civil claim. Criminal investigation? Very interesting. December 2019, over 6,000 pages of exhibits. Early March, late May, late June 2022, nearly another 1,000 pages of exhibits, although we have been in U.S. tax court since August 2019, so they're coming up on four years here soon. Time has been our friend as we source info ongoing basis. We made our initial public appearance when we testified to the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, December 13, 2018. We covered that earlier in the show. Timeline. Began effort late 2015. Filed our Clinton Foundation whistleblower submission to IRS August 2017. Provided information, formal exhibits to IRS, DOJ, FBI, ongoing basis through 2018. Received IRS preliminary denial November 2018. Testified to Congress December 13, 2018. Received IRS final denial February 2019. Appealed to U.S. Tax Court March 2019. Appeal accepted by U.S. Tax Court August 28, 2019. Case ongoing. Many, and especially legal sleuths, and the audience can learn much from simply reviewing the docket record alone. Again, they link to it. Our claims versus the Clinton Foundation as delivered at the congressional hearing, violations of IRS code as a public charity, one, acting as a foreign agent, two, material misrepresentations filed under penalty of perjury, three, intentional misuse of donated public funds, four, private foundations, including especially the Gates Foundation, are subject to tax on their Clinton Foundation donations under IRS code for donors' responsibilities. Documented evidence includes all Clinton Foundation financials, tax returns, audits, annual reports, income statements, contracts with foreign governments, partnership agreements and business plans with pharmaceutical firms, etc., reviews of inspector general reports, reviews of donors' tax returns and financials, reviews of Clinton Foundation internal counsel, state registration statements, interviews with then current and former Clinton Foundation executives, including the former chief financial officer, the CFO, who was with them until last year. Email exchanges between Clinton Foundation executives and foreign government officials. Reviews of U.S. State Department emails. Reviews of State Department slash USAID in-country plans. Reviews of Geneva-based non-governmental organizations, Global Fund, UNI. UNITAID, and more. Who are we? While many may know of us, given that our previous account was heavily censored, 
and the mainstream media will not touch us or our case. He says, I welcome sharing the following. My partner, John Moynihan, is largely a private individual. He's a money laundering expert without peer. He formerly worked for the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. He testified to Congress on the financing of global terrorism after the 9-11 tragedy. They got the link to that. Larry Doyle says, I worked on Wall Street for nearly 25 years and have done extensive work over the last 15 years regarding regulatory capture and corruption. I blogged extensively on these topics, got the link to that, and wrote a book, In Bed with Wall Street, for which I humbly inform you I was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. In short, we have decades of experience in pursuing and making cases of this sort. We have other claims of similar nature. We're registered independents. We're fully self-financed. Why did we do this? Number one, this is what we do. We make cases as principal and for clients. Number two, if not us, who? Number three, if not now, going back to late 2015 when we started, when? We receive endless messages from Americans of all political stripes who share messages similar to this recently received communication. Quote, every damn day there's a new report of corruption, lack of accountability, and so on. Nothing ever comes of it. So many people have given up the fight. They drew a box, and in that box is family, a few tight friends, and a career to provide. They are all, well, I can't really cuss here because I don't cuss, you know. Just put it this way. He's saying they've basically given up. Larry Doyle says, John and I believe in America. All of our kids and grandchildren and future, and future generations deserve better. We work tirelessly to pursue truth, justice, rule of law, and America for all of you. Additional information requests. Primary reason, track our case at the U.S. Tax Court link. FBH in our header stands for Financial Bounty Hunters, along with Clinton Foundation whistleblowers. Please follow us. Share this thread on Twitter. I prefer not getting into our leaving Twitter this past March. Thank you. And he says, oh, oh, okay, okay. And he goes on to some some interviews they did. Uh, But as I have said to you, I've been in contact with these folks on and off ever since December 13th, 2018, when I I came upon their testimony and figured out that they confirmed what we thought about the federal agents who raided the Clinton Foundation. And I trust that at some point we'll get an interview. Now, I will say this. I think somehow, by the grace of God, they wound up with a very good judge, the judge of the, uh, the U.S. tax court. His name is David Gustafson, senior judge of the U.S. tax court. And he was originally appointed in, in 08 by George W. Bush. And so he got his B.A. at Bob Jones University, and he got his law degree at Duke University. I have reason to believe that he is a born-again Christian who sees his job as administering justice 
without fear or favor. So that's a really good thing. Having said all of that, let's say this. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Don Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online, have it delivered to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental USA. So today's Tweet of the Day is from a Twitter account called the FJC. Trust, integrity, and ethics spreading truth and laughter every chance I get. Political commentary. And he says, Trump should stand up in front of the New York courthouse on Tuesday, surrounded by Secret Service, hands in the air saying, hands up, don't shoot, and I can't breathe. That is your Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto, and we appreciate y'all. And I appreciate the opportunity to get the truth out to you about Anthony Fauci and the Clintons. You've been listening to episode 361 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us. Contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. Well, that's the way it is. Sunday, March 19th, 2023.